Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Daryl Urbanski, and welcome to the Best Business Podcast. My mission is to help create 200 new multimillionaire business owners. How? You'll do better when you know better. In my interviews, you'll hear from self-made millionaires, seven-figure business owners, authors, and world-class experts sharing how they did it so you can too without experiencing the same obstacles they did. Now, if you like this interview, please share it with a friend you think will benefit. They'll appreciate it, and I will as well. You can also connect with me on social media. Look for Daryl Urbanski, D-A-R-Y-L, Urban Ski, U-R-B-A-N-S-K-I, and add me so we can be friends. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy what I've prepared for you right here, right now. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today I have a very special guest for you, a man who I have admired for years now. He's influenced me in many, many, many ways. In fact, his material was some of the first I ever dived into back when I was a complete newbie at this. I'm sure most of it went way over my head, but what a great introduction to marketing and the psychology of it all it was. And if you don't know yet, I'm talking about the one and only Glenn Livingston. Uh, Glenn and his lovely wife, Sharon, have been highly sought after marketing consultants for billion-dollar companies. Companies, Fortune 500 companies like AT&T, American Express, Exxon, Citibank, Hallmark, Kodak, Kraft, Lipton, Panasonic, MasterCard, Whirlpool. Whirlpool, he's a legend. In fact, I'm part of an online mastermind group Glenn is in, and people talk about him like the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or something. They'll say things on calls like, did, did you see Glenn? He, I, I saw him answer someone's question. I hope next time he answers mine. <laughs> so... Uh, Glenn's, Glenn's a great, a great, great man. He's also very humble, very modest, and a real-life marketing ninja. And you'd have to be to have sold over twenty million dollars in consulting services to major brands like those I just mentioned. Glenn also managed to put himself very deep into debt with a business project, which came to an abrupt halt right after 9-11. So what did he do to get out of this? He goes and uses a system he's been developing for over twenty-five years and enters seventeen different niches all at once and all profitably. Not only this, but he then co-founded, helped build, and eventually sold a very well-respected marketing agency. He's worked personally with over thousands of, uh, thousands of clients in his 25-plus years as a coach. He's helped countless of them develop a very lucrative and fulfilling careers, including another guest of ours, Ryan Levesque, who took Glenn's teaching and went and helped sell over $100 million for his clients, internalizing Glenn's system. So Glenn is the real deal. He's also from a family of, I believe, 17 psychologists and three social workers, and is the the reason why for years now I drink a tall glass of water first thing every morning. <laughs> um, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been looking forward to this more than words can express. How are you doing, my friend? Thanks, Daryl. It's an honor to be here. What? Um, why do you drink a tall glass of water every morning? <laughs> because in one of your videos, you were talking about how it helped you so much and it was so beneficial. And it was like some indigenous tribe somewhere, like we wash the outside of our oh, bodies. Yes, yes, yes. I, I was doing an audio about selling with stories yes in in fiji and right yeah and there's this indigenous tribe that thought it was really weird that the americans were taking showers in the morning they said why in the world would you wash your outsides first thing don't you want to wash your insides first thing (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, and I had a whole story about um, yeah. marketing marketing with stories, and I, w- I wound up buying a subscription to Fiji from that for a long time, too. So <laughs> thank, thank you. I'm doing really well, and I'm happy to be here. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, it's an honor and pleasure to have you, and I've honestly been doing that almost every morning for years. I know you think you said it was like a leader or something at the time, and what, I just have a big, tall glass, but it, it's huge. It, it really, I, I feel it hitting my system. I feel it waking me up, and I th- we talked about, just before this, the importance of a, of a morning routine, and um, just to help you wake up and get ready for your day. So that's been a huge part, just and helping me so I definitely owe you that I mean it's sometimes it's the little things but it's just even stacking habits that can have a huge impact on your life so yep start but. start the day off right and it keeps going right so now how did you even get involved in marketing I mean you've got a long career in this you've been doing a ton of work from some big big names you've I don't, I don't know you've done just uh, almost anything anyone in our profession could want to add to their resume so how did you even get going in all of this um, well, I, first of all, I, I owe my wife a lot of credit all along the way, including, by the way, in the recovery from the debt. It, it can sound like those 17 profitable niches paid off the $2 million that we lost, and that's not really true. It was a part of it, but it's not really um, – my wife deserves a lot of credit for what she was doing on her side during that time also. So I just want to say that. And she's also the reason that I got into marketing. Mm. I, I, I've always thought of myself as a psychologist first and foremost. And the difference is, you know, I, I come from a family of um, psychologists and psychotherapists and social workers and everything like that. And I forget exactly how many people have licenses and how many people are, um, you know, lay psychotherapists, but it's a family profession. And everybody kind of settled down and became a country doctor for lack of a better metaphor. Hmm. And they, to me, it's nice to be a country doctor, right? You help maybe 40 or 50 people any given year that are working with you weekly or biweekly, and maybe you help their families a little bit. And you know, over the course of a career, you help a couple of thousand people. But I wanted something more. When, when I was a little boy, I remember going to show and tell in kindergarten and people asked me what my dad did. And I said, well, when people are unhappy, he makes them happy. And that, <laughs> that's what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do it on a broader scale. And so I originally got into marketing because I thought that psychoeducation was a way to educate the masses and give them the tools to, you know, um, now I would sell, say lead a contented life when they were not content. I, I think that trying to be happy all the time is mm. kind of moronic pursuit. But, but, mm. uh, but, but I, I guess to make a long story short, I, I, um, you know, I married a marketer and I got more and more interested in what she was doing. And I, I had skills that she didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to a more like scientific psychology program mm-hmm. and she'd gone to a more like creative psychology, creative humanistic psychology program. And so I had the ability to quantify what she was doing with these big companies. Mm. She was doing all these really soulful interviews and conversations and figuring out the emotional reasons for purchase. But before a big brand would want to put $50 million into an advertising campaign, sometimes they would say, well, can you prove that to me with numbers? And the problem was that you take these soulful conversations and then you try to put them into a survey and that just would take the soul out of them. And Mm -hmm. so – I built these observational studies in these inferential statistical protocols that would really do what she was doing, but in a quantitative way that I could get up and show charts and graphs and 
prove to the CEO that this was the way that they should, they should go. Mm. Um, and, and that's how I got involved with marketing to start with. It was really more marketing research than marketing. But, um, you know, I, I, the problem with that, although it's really lucrative, is the travel and the politics. Mm. There, I had to travel to Japan and back for one hour meeting one time. Is a long trip. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, went, I got on a plane in New York, took a 14-hour flight, got off at the Tokyo airport, reorganized the researchers from China and Singapore and Japan all came to the Tokyo airport. We met for an hour. Um, I could tell you some funny stories about what happened in that meeting because I had no idea about the Japanese culture. <laughs> and then, I, and then, then I turned around and came home, and that was the kind of thing that was becoming necessary this is just as the research industry was becoming much more global. And, you know, I was trying to run a psychology practice at the same time and I was working with suicidal people and it really didn't match. I couldn't be hmm. traveling around the globe like that. <laughs> you, can't, you can't call your suicidal client and be like, sorry, I can't make our meeting. I... You, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. So I am, um, you know, we, we tried to, we tried to get out of the very lucrative, very interesting, but exhausting politically complex consulting industry. We tried to get out of that by um, going to the other end of the industry, which is running a research facility Mm -hmm. so that all the people who are selling intellectual capital, who are consulting for large agencies, we decided we were going to be the ones that gathered the research participants and hosted the conferences and had one-way mirrors and focus group rooms and internet streaming, which was first just coming onto the scene back then. Mm -hmm. And um, what I learned at that time was that don't think you can just jump into something else right. uh, without researching it. I, I didn't apply my own stuff to projects, <laughs> and we lost a lot of money. Right. Um, it was right around 9-11. It was in New York, so that didn't help, but we were losing money anyway. And we, um, you know, we found ourselves deep in debt, and we, I had told all my patients and all of our clients that we weren't doing this work anymore. We were just going to run this facility, and... That was a mistake also. It's just like jump ship 100%. Mm. And um, so I was kind of forced to kind of step back, similar to the Gary Halbert gun to the head Mm. modality where I say, well, look, I've got to make this work now. And I'm 40 years old and I don't have a a business that I don't have a practice and my wife doesn't have an income and I don't have an income. And, you know, we're we're still two doctors. We're still very skilled. And we built ourselves up by applying what we knew about psychological research to our own to our own projects and I, I started out with really small stuff you know guinea pig yeah guinea pig and guinea pigs i remember you talking about the difference of search traffic yeah if, if you're going to inter- intercept people and ask them what they're looking for it tends to differ depending upon sometimes things as small as one letter of the search phrase um people searching for guinea pig if i remember correctly wanted to know what a guinea pig looks like and how big they get. And people searching for guinea pigs were more likely to want to know about how to take care of them and how long they lived and were they okay with kids. Mm. Um, and, and obviously there were marketing implications for that because if you intercepted people and, and you know, exhaustively ferreted out those differences, you could then segment them into different marketing funnels that addressed what you already knew they wanted um, and they would say, you know, well, wow, this is like psychic prediction. Right. 
which is so powerful in marketing. I mean, that's a huge, huge thing. That's the holy grail, right? Is to enter the conversation going on in people's in people's minds. So, so how, where did that then kind of lead you along? I mean, you started doing guinea pig and small markets and small little info businesses, if I'm correct. And right. Was, and it was off of pay per click and your like a survey form, basically your own survey formula, correct? Yeah, it, it was like a variation of the underachievers model, if you remember what that was. So you'd, you'd run an ad that said everything you need to know about guinea pigs all in one place. And then they'd click on the ad and land on a page that says, I'm writing a book about guinea pigs. And if you'll just tell me your single most important question about guinea pigs, I'll give you a copy of the book. And I said, well, that's really a simplistic model. It's a very powerful model because it runs on the notion that marketing is just asking people what they want and giving it to them. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot easier to know what people want if you ask them than if you <laughs> sit around in a boardroom and guess about it and spend millions of dollars doing that. Right. <laughs> um, which is what a lot of Madison Avenue does. Right. So I, I added, you know, elements of, um, uh, you know, if you, if you ask people how difficult it's been for them to find what they're looking for, then you can start to isolate things that are market gaps as opposed to things that they could find for free on the first page of Google or, or easily finding with other vendors. Right. I would ask them why they were looking for it, what it would mean to their life, and, you know, is. I don't know how much you want me to talk about all this because I've talked about this in a thousand other interviews. But but um, you can find it's it's better to know that the reason this woman is searching for how long guinea pigs live is because the last pet that she got, her kid was a hamster and it died after six months and the kid was devastated. As a marketer, that gives me a much richer canvas to paint than if I just know she wants to learn how long these animals live. Right? Right. I, don't, I don't know why. So I would be adding those types of things, and then I would do all kinds of statistics and looking at different segments and breaking the market up into funnels and looking at the keywords. And I developed a very sophisticated process. Um, Turned out to be mostly for people who want to play in the deep end of the pool. Mm -hmm. Uh, I affectionately call them propeller-headed geeks or geeks who live in jocks' bodies like me. Uh, (laughs) I, I, I... yeah, and and so intriguingly, like that was not a multi-million-dollar business. Teaching people how to do research, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I started teaching that. I was asked to speak about it because I had some real success in all these different markets. So I started teaching it, and I think you know what? I'm going to have to build a real solid multi-million-dollar business. I can't. I mean, I was making a few hundred thousand dollars, but but. Um, it just seemed like it was going to go on like that forever. And I was in all these different, I was so dispersed that I couldn't really focus on any one business. And I had, how was I going to develop the back ends? And mm. it was driving me crazy. And so I decided that, you know what, all that work was just to develop the formula. That's, that's what that was all about. And I did that and I proved it and I got out and I spoke about it and I got a little famous for it, running around to the seminars. And, and then um, people started asking, you know, gee, Glenn, this is real deep end of the pool kind of stuff. Do you think you could do it for me? And if I was going to do consulting again, I decided I just had to charge a fortune because mm-hmm. I made a lot of money consulting for big companies. And, and the only difference here was that I could stay home, but I, I just didn't want to be in my forties trapped consulting for everybody else. So, mm-hmm. um, so I got a partner and we started an agency mm-hmm. and that, that became rocket clicks and they're, they grew to 21 people and they, they did very well. Mm-hmm. 
painfully, it was painful. I got to say, we had some painful few years, and I wound up, I wound up selling my shares in the company to an applicable partner who I still talk to this day and consider a friend. Hmm. Um, I think I was there. You guys just short, launched shortly after Ken's last system. I remember you guys doing a plug for it there. The software looked phenomenal, the way it optimized. And anyways, I, I don't want to go on a side tangent but because <laughs> you're, you're telling a great story. But I just remember that. I think – was that – that was like 2011, 2010? No, we, I think we launched it in 2008 actually. Oh, wow. Anyway, um, but that was a good experience. So what, up until then, I saw my own results. And when I started doing that, I've done a little bit of, of business coaching – before that, but when I started doing the when I started doing rocket clicks and I dug into literally over a hundred people's campaigns, because we would have them apply and look at their campaigns, we look at their whole funnel, and I could really see like the dollars into dollars out results and what was working and what wasn't. And I could see I could see how people were making money in spite of themselves and just how many undervalued assets were on the table. And I mean, that, that was a real experience. So and, what are some of those? I mean, what, what are some of the, the, what are some of the insights that you got from looking over hundreds of accounts? How are some people, I mean, obviously that's a whole lecture in and of itself, but is there any kind of tidbits you can give us? That, that... Yeah, it was almost the opposite of how I was approaching advertising at the time. Um, I was hyper-segmenting things. So when I would run a campaign, I would run, you know, 35 different ad groups that all centered around um, a particular keyword because I was looking for the differences between keywords and I was trying to hyper-segment things so I could leverage the, hey, this is exactly for me effect. Because at that time, I'd ask myself, well, what do I know always works in marketing? What always works is when people think is exactly for them. Mm -hmm. So if you run an AdWord campaign and you split off a keyword and you build another ad specifically for that keyword and all of a sudden you get a higher click through rate. You, you know what that experience is. And I tried to leverage that to the nth degree. Hmm. But what I found was that first of all, a lot of the bigger businesses seemed to be making money on very few keyword groups. This was back in 2008. So things were a little different now, but it's like they started with a, bullseye and they expanded out from there Hmm. and um and they had you know one primary offer and they really were more minimalistic um at least the successful ones that i saw they were more minimalistic than my approach had been to that point and it's and, and so i kind of decided to i conceptualized this as the bullseye hyper responsive approach where you really had to to find a center of gravity online. You needed to figure out because the internet is indexed by keywords. You really needed to figure out what did what your site to be about. Like if it could only be about one keyword, what's your dead center? Where do you, where do you live? How do you position yourself online? And if you made a really strong center of gravity, it would radiate outwards from there. But if you didn't have that strong center of gravity, then you wouldn't, um, Mm, you'd be floating. You wouldn't you'd be, be floating. Like, you wouldn't be well rooted. Yep, that makes perfect sense. Right, right. So, like you know, so my classic example is if you want to break into the weight weight loss market, it was better to do something about emotional eating, because um, the people who 
would respond to an ad about emotional eating and land on a page about emotional eating were um, much more likely to be convinced by an offer about emotional eating. And it took you out of the, right. like instead so of having 30 million competitors, you had a half a dozen competitors and, right. and then you were really, really strong on that, on that mm-hmm. keyword. So. But the difference for them was not to have that. Is that correct? They didn't have well, that? No, they kind of sort of did. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I don't think that I did originally. I think, I think originally I was oh. successful because I had, I put out 35 ad groups and, you know, 15 of them would begin to work. And then I would work on segmenting and developing, you know, these crazy complicated funnels. And that turned out to be really not, I, I think that, I guess the best way to put it is that I think that segmentation is a multiplier, but it's not the most efficient way to start a business. The most efficient way to start a business is more of a lean startup Hmm. concept. And you don't want to start applying all of the multipliers until you have, if you have traction to start with. And that's what was different about how these businesses were thinking than how I was thinking. Got it. So let me try to paraphrase or or say recap. So you're saying that for the most part, like to segment out will get you a greater response. It'll multiply what you've got, but if you have zero, then segmenting a lot isn't going to do anything. You need to kind of establish a baseline, kind of a core, a core avatar, a core product, a core funnel. And then when you have that established, you can optimize it and multiply its effectiveness by enhancing your segmenting, but you don't want to do that too soon. Is that kind of correct? Yes, because what's appealing in theory there's a lot of things we could talk about that almost always improve businesses, um, a marketing funnels, economics. Mm-hmm. But what's appealing in theory doesn't necessarily take into account resource allocation. And if you don't, if if you develop a hyper segmented funnel, that becomes a lot to manage, and you really need to know how much that's going to pay off before you start executing that. And that's why Ryan Levesque, by the way, who took this took this approach to the nth degree. That's why he only goes after a very particular kind of client, right? If you mm-hmm. listen to the interviews I've done with Ryan, he only goes after clients that are doing, I mean, usually as much as a million dollars a month, definitely a million dollars a year, in you know, direct-to-consumer, high-volume markets because that's where segmentation leverage can really pay off what, once you're already – doing a high volume of transactions and you can do a lot of testing and um, mm. it makes sense to allocate that level of research to do exhaustive segmentation. Got it. Uh, now, now, sometimes if you've got something that's okay. kind of sort of working, right. you can bring it over the profit line by segmenting it. But, but I, I think that I was early on just kind of fascinated, like, fascinated like a geek because I really liked, <laughs> I just really liked the idea of segmentation and, I hadn't played it out to the, played it out to the end result. Got it. Got it. Got it. So what's your, if you were to redo, you know, instead of launching L17, but if you were to launch a new business now or to take on a new endeavor, like what, what would be your approach then? Would you still? Well, so for for the last five years, I, I talk about defining an archery target. I I talk about a hyper-responsive well, I talk about a hyper-responsive research process where you define a bullseye and then you divide, define a series of concentric 
circles around it. No, no more than six concentric circles. And so I, I really look for six keyword groups. And then you go through the internet looking for who's winning the game. Yeah, so, so I defined a... I define an archery target. I want to know what I'm aiming for. And that includes a bullseye, which might be emotional leading. And then it includes some related keyword groups around it, like, oh, maybe it would be binge eating, overeating, stress eating. And I make sure that I know what the boundaries of that target are. So it wouldn't go all the way out to weight loss because that would be too undifferentiated. But it, it would go out to stress eating. Hmm. Um, and... I study what the competitors are doing on those keywords, and I study what the best-selling books in Amazon are writing about and you know, what are their tables of contents and what's the language and concerns and objections in the Amazon reviews. And I look at other language and social media, and I kind of gather and organize that in a systematic way so I can take a really good guess as to how to put up a site and then I run a survey on that site, and um, you can see an example of one of those surveys at screwyourdiet.com. That's where you would go. If you <laughs> screwyourdiet.com. I love yeah. it. <laughs> and it, the survey is not actually on the landing page. When you click to, when you click the action button on that page, the survey you'll see the survey. Got it. Okay. Um, but I put together a whole, a whole website, and then I would run the survey. And I use that to gather all the information about the kind of content that I have to produce. And then when I'm launching it in pay-per-click, I actually start with just one keyword. I start with the bullseye keyword. And I usually start in Google because I think they're the – not that they're necessarily the friendliest, but they've got the best system, purest traffic, um, the most intelligence that I can gather from it. So I, I start with Google and I – expand outwards. I, I, I look to see what other keywords that they start exposing me to if I bid on a broad match for, you know, emotional leading, for example. And then I, usually that will be the, that will be the keywords that I researched because I did the original keyword research in Google, but um, I'll see where it goes. Cause it really empirically at this point depends on what people are actually responding to. And, mm. and, um, I'll build it outwards from there. So I'll let it organically evolve as opposed to trying to segment from the beginning. Got it. And then, and then if it's working, then I'll think about segmenting later on. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, for anyone that's listening to this that may not know the importance of keyword research, I mean, what a lot of people may not even think about or realize is that, you know, for years we all wish that we could read other people's minds and know what they're thinking. And with the Internet, you can. And although it's a, it's a casual term thrown around keywords – you know, that's that's what you're getting. You're getting the thought people are having when they're going to the Internet. Correct, Glenn? Um, well, what I like to say is that keyword searches are compressed conversations people wish they could have with a loving uncle or aunt. Where people really, if I'm overeating chocolate, which I've been known to do, <laughs> I, I really wish that I could go talk to a loving aunt and say, you know, Aunt Sheila, I can't stop eating chocolate. It's driving me crazy. I'm 20 pounds overweight and my triglycerides are too high and I really have to stop. What should I do? Mm. 
And she would go, there, there now, Glenn. Let me tell you about when I had this and I worked with these other people who had it. And, you know, what you need to do is X, Y, and Z. But I can't say all that in a search engine. So what I type in is emotional eating or stop eating chocolate, right? Mm, Right. And your job as a marketer is to decompress the compressed keyword phrase and figure out what that original conversation I was trying to have with my aunt would have been. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. And the way you do that is by looking at look looking at the best sellers on Amazon for stop eating chocolate. And then look at the book reviews for those best sellers. Right. And within those book reviews, you're gonna find very emotional language. Right. From- on both sides, the positive and the negative. The negative reviews are just as valuable, right? Because I, I know right off the bat, people are thinking yep. positive reviews, but God. well, the negative reviews will recommend the things that would. The negative reviews will represent things that will stop people from buying. So those are objections you're going to have to overcome in your marketing. Mm. So you'll look there. You can go to search.twitter.com and look to see what people are tweeting about. Stopping eating chocolate. You Is can. that the new one? Because you recommended one before. It was TweetGrid. And it doesn't work anymore, I, I don't think. TweetGrid doesn't work anymore. Yeah. You get, so search.twitter.com is the native search function that Twitter provides. So that will always work. But there used to be a free utility. There still are free utilities. But I used to recommend TweetGrid that would set up a marquee, kind of like an ongoing scrolling Twitter conversation on your on your keywords and you can enter the whole archery target, not just one keyword, but I could could have a marquee going for emotional eating, one for stress eating, one for binge eating, one for overeating, mm-hmm. and start to see what the difference is between them. What what you can do now, there's something called Hootsuite. Right. And you can accomplish it's a little beyond the scope of what I can do in an interview to show you how to do that, but <laughs> anybody that's a little techie can figure it out. Okay. Um, you can use Hootsuite to add Twitter feeds to your you can add Twitter feeds to your Hootsuite account and do the same thing that you used to be able to do in in TweetGrid, which was to set up a series of marquees so you could be bathing in the conversations. So you, you, it used to be you had to go to a trade show, right? right. I don't even know if there's a trade show for chocolate addicts, but <laughs> <laughs> there probably are trade shows for people who want to keep eating chocolate. I don't know if right. there are trade right. shows for people. <laughs> Chocolate's anonymous. <laughs> I mean, there probably actually there probably is a chocolate anonymous. You, you probably have to go find chocolate anonymous and hang out with them to hear all the stories of people and how chocolate was interfering with their lives and how they finally stopped. But now you can be listening in social media. You can also, you know, search Facebook for those types of conversations. You can look for groups in Facebook where people are talking about. I don't think you find a group where people are talking about stop eating chocolate, but I think you would find one about stress eating or emotional eating. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how you start to read their minds. And ideally, you invite people from those groups to talk to you. Sometimes you could pay them a few bucks. It's better if you don't, but sometimes you have to. Wait, wait, wait. You actually talk to prospects? That's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to tell you, it's really hard to convince people to do this. <laughs> yep. But but there's nobody that ever told me they regretted it when they, mm. when they did. Now, 
I want to bring up a point because online research is so powerful because you get a lot of the candid conversations people are having. I remember you were talking about some focus group that was being run and they were trying to get people to choose between various products and they kept them there for a number of hours, did a number of exercises. And at the end, they were like, thank you for coming. You know, I think they were getting some sort of check or something. And they were like, oh, by the way, you know, our supervisor, whoever said you can actually take one of the products home with you, but only one. So you're free to pick whichever one you want. And that that was the actual test. Because in the focus group, people will tell you what they think, you know, you want to hear what their opinions are. But then when you do that, they grab the product that they actually wanted. And so with online, that's a really good way to kind of listen in candidly and hear the real conversation people are having. That's something I've kind of always wanted to ask about that because honestly, it's something that I've felt has made me hesitant in using surveys is because I'm, you know, how do you – how do you trust the data that you get? Or when you do get someone on the phone and they tell you, is there, you know, is there any kind of like rule of thumb or, you know? Just- well, okay. So those are good questions. And research data exists on a confidence continuum. So at the, um, at the very best, there's research that you do to generate hypotheses and there's research that you do to confirm hypotheses. Hmm. And like the people who say that you should only do quantitative research, what they're missing is, well, what is the input for that research? And is the input for that research scientifically determined or did you pull that out of your butt? And so I've always believed that you need a thorough approach to marketing research, which incorporates both qualitative and quantitative methods. So um, I I gave a talk called The Four Corners of Marketing Research. And the essence of this is that there are four ways to listen to the market. You can listen with your head or you can listen with your heart. Listening with your head is um, listening in ways that can be quantified. Like doing a survey is listening with your head because you're trying to tabulate and quantify the results Mm. versus listening with your heart is having a squishier conversation, right? A more heartfelt conversation where you follow the prospect wherever they want to lead you. You try to engage them emotionally. When you do that, you're admitting that you're necessarily influencing the prospects more than if they were taking a structured survey online and certainly more than if they were um, certainly more than if they were buying or not buying when you were comparing in a scientifically controlled experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's listening with your head versus listening with your heart, and there's listening to what people say versus what people do. Um, and if you put those four together, it becomes a quadrant. And you want to attack the market from north, south, east, and west if you can. But I tell people to try at least two, and one of them should be quantitative, one of them should be qualitative. So let's just talk about the different ways you can do that. Um, If you're listening to what people do in a quantitative way, if you're listening with your head to what people do, then you're doing a quantitative test. You're doing an A-B split test this headline versus that headline, you're only counting which one people buy from. And you can definitively say when that's done, you know, headline B won by 32% with a statistical chance of error of less than 3%. Um, Now that's great. And that's, that's how you protect a system that's already working. You 
only change it when you find a statistically significant difference in um, what people do in a quantitative way. But the problem is you don't know why headline B1. And because you don't know why headline B1, you don't know what you need to test next. And you don't, you don't know if there are other products that you should be developing or other ways you should be talking to the customers. You just know that headline B1. And you can kind of have a guessing game as to why it might be, but, but you don't really know. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if I listen with my heart to what people say, and I go and I talk to them, and I show them headline A, and I show them headline B, and I ask them what they think, I'm going to have a lot of really good hypotheses regarding why they're choosing headline B versus headline A. And that's going to lead to a whole bunch of other ideas that I can test to improve the business. So Mm. they're both incredibly valuable. And the idea that you should only do quantitative science is really very restricting in marketing and elsewhere, marketing and elsewhere. Um, You can listen to what people do with your heart also, by the way, and that's called ethnography. That's not personally interviewing people. That's um, kind of like what Jane Goodall did out in the jungle when she lived with the monkeys for... Right, right, right. Gorillas in the mist. (laughs) Actually, been to Uganda. Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Right. And we've actually done studies. We did one for Lipton where we couldn't... Lipton couldn't figure out why people continued to, I think this was it, why people continued to buy tea when it was leaking. And they couldn't figure out how they were dealing with the, like the tea bag was actually leaking some tea into the water. Mm -hmm. And it was a hard thing to ask people because they kind of forgot about it if you tried to have a conversation with them. So what, what we did was we sent people into their houses and they just had a video camera and they watched them and they were instructed not to really interact with them. And they, they just go out and they watch them and then later you analyze the videotapes and try to figure out what's, um, what's going on. So, I mean, even there, there's some interaction and influence. Of course, of but, course, of course. But, but so I, I guess what I'm saying is there are, there are all these methodologies and they all have their downfall and they all have their strong points. And if you combine several of them, you'll get an accurate picture of the market. It's kind of like the three blind men and the elephant. You need all three to figure out that. You know, it's, it's it's actually an elephant, and not just a tree or a straw. Or I forget what the third guy said. <laughs> but, um, so that's that's the answer to that. They, there are also ways, Daryl, when you interview people, to interview them less obtrusively. Hmm. Like, like you can't really ask people their emotional reason for purchase. You can't really say to people, you know, do you do you choose the American Express card because it makes you feel important? It makes you feel like you're a high-status person. You, you can't really do that because it's not socially desirable for someone to admit that in front of another person. So there, there are alterations in questioning techniques that we can use to get at that information without asking it directly. You kind of do things in a game-like way. Um, maybe we'll have them you know, look at the American Express. Imagine they can see the American Express platinum card on a door and they can also see the American Express regular card on a door and we'll put them in a relaxed state and tell them to walk through those doors and 
see what they see and hear what they hear and feel what they feel and just imagine an entirely different scene. And then I have them talk about what they saw and then it becomes really clear why they like one versus the other. Um, when you do that with enough people and a pattern emerges. So there are things like that, which are called projective techniques, which minimize social desirability bias and they minimize the um, subject's tendency to tell you what you want because they don't really know what you're getting at. You're asking them to play this weird game. Um, so there, there are ways to minimize that, but the bottom line is it's still a little bit squishy and mm. it needs to be tested afterwards. Right, 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 right. No, I appreciate that. That's very, very valuable because I think a lot of people listening to this call, that's what they're trying to figure out is how do you get in tune to your market? I mean, I read a book recommended to us by another guest called The Discipline of Market Reader, uh, Leaders, and they, the book was basically talking about how every business either leads either because it's operationally superior, something like Walmart, where they can afford to sell at such it's so efficient the company is so efficient they can their margins are so small that they just crush their competition as far as you know convenience and effectiveness and cost other companies they they have the best product but it may not necessarily be the cheapest and that's their like that's like apple and then other companies they just like you said like that it's built for me that custom feel and i think all of us want all of that right we all want optimized businesses and we all want the best products that we can deliver and we all want to tune in but that's especially for you i think that that figure that part out is really difficult for a lot of people and I know some people that you know they make money hand over fist in their market but they're frustrated because they don't even know why I mean I have a client that's doing 25,000 a month but they you know they sell their parents and they, this is literally what the one lady said she said parents are fickle I don't necessarily know why they're buying and so this stuff is really helpful I know for you because you sit in it so much it might seem old hat but I think it's really valuable for a lot of our listeners and I definitely hope that they're taking notes and if this, anything's jumped out at you please listen to it again I've, I've been trying to not take <laughs> Can I tell you something that I think is incredibly stupid? Sure. It, it just drives me crazy, but I see it over and over and over again. People that have successful online businesses and they've never interviewed their customers. Right. Like, like <laughs> I, I know people who have multi-million dollar businesses and they've never interviewed their customers. And there's just so much gold sitting on the table. If you send out an email and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you for a couple of minutes. Could you please reply? I just want to find out how are we doing? How can we do better? How else can we serve you? Right. And you know, spend a half a day talking to those people, and you just won't believe what you find out. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. I think that's, that's very oh. valuable advice, for sure. And I know, because that's something that piqued my interest when you said that earlier, people making money in spite of themselves. Because I know some people doing that, too, where I just see them doing things like just backwards. I'm like, how are they making it? But um, <laughs> there's more to being successful at a business than I guess market research and, and knowing your customer apparently, but, um, that's really powerful. So it's evolved for you over the years, like in, in, in vast ways and had a profound effect because it originally started with simple surveys and, and now you're getting more and more in depth. So now I guess when you work with clients, what are some of the key mistakes that you see them making or key places? I mean, you mentioned that you're just now that they haven't talked to their customers. Is that like the biggest mistake you see most people making that they don't have any? Of that no, line? no, 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 no. Um, I think the, are you talking about beginners or people with existing businesses? Well, um, let's say people with existing businesses. The biggest mistake I see people with existing businesses making is chasing traffic and diversifying, trying to go after efficiency when what they really need to do is improve the conversion of their whole system. 
Because mm. tra traffic is really driven by conversion. If, if you can afford to pay more for traffic because you, you convert twice as many customers as everybody else, twice as many prospects as everybody else, mm -hmm. and if you have a higher lifetime value than other people, then you can get all the traffic you need doing that. That's, mm. that's, it's much more effective. But I still find that most businesses don't really understand how traffic really works. Mm. And I also see, and this is a part, in part an artifact of the fact that I taught in pay-per-click circles and I owned an agency, so a lot of my followers tend to be pay-per-click thinkers, but, you know, Google, Facebook, and Bing are not the only places in the world to get traffic. Right. And, and I think I see people just feeling way too dependent on Google in particular and, um, hmm. you know, getting stuck there. So the other mistake that I see is resource allocation. It's kind of like what we talked about with the segmentation, but I think people tend to have too many projects going and <laughs> not, not enough discipline with regards to which project they're really going to execute this month. And the They'll try to execute six projects at once, and none of, none of them actually get out the door to make the money when they should be putting six units of effort into one project so that can get out of the door and make money and then move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. I see that a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was laughing because that's, that's me. I've like, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of that. I'm not happy unless I have eight things spinning. So that's definitely, um, yeah. You know, as an entrepreneur, there's, we don't have parents to tell us not to eat cookies, right? Right. So whatever cookie shows up in front of us, we just, we just kind of grab it and then we have a bellyache later. So. <laughs> but but it, it, or we're joining chocolates, uh, chocolates and chocoholics. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> They're willing to work 23 hours a day um, with nobody telling us what to do because we're not willing to work one hour a day for any, with anybody telling us what to do. So <laughs> there are downsides to it also. That's so articulately said. I love that. That's, that's Yeah. That definitely is entrepreneurs, isn't it? <laughs> Those are great tips. Those are such great tips. And I, I agree because that's something I learned from Ken, Ken McCarthy, a mutual friend and, and, um, and I guess mentor of both of us at some point is that traffic, you can just write a check and get more traffic. But what really matters is the conversion. And, and like you said, being able to capitalize on those people. Now, can we talk about that a little bit? Like some of the key tenets of conversion? I don't want to encroach on your time too much. I know you've got a hard stop, but I, I just wanted to hear some of those points because I, I, I've heard that a, a, n a number of times that, you know, if your conversion is good enough, you can write a check. But what do people do if they're not getting the conversions that they need? Well, and this maybe goes back to the biggest mistakes I see business owners making. Um. Okay. People think conversion is all about copywriting, and copywriting is a part of it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of how you package it all up. But really, it's the match of the offer to the audience. And before, if you're not getting good enough conversion, probably the first place to look is not tweaking the headline mm -hmm. or changing the color of your site or you know adding another story. Probably the place to look is is the offer well-matched to the audience, and is it strong enough? People tend to underestimate the cost of customer acquisition. They're really trying to make money on the front-end um, product, and they're not willing to pay enough either in 
value they're giving the customer or, you know, in the, um, in the discounts or time that it takes to actually take care of that customer for, for the first offer. Customer acquisition is a really expensive process. Mm. And when businesses get caught up in the efficiency of customer acquisition, they actually wind up spending more money in the long run. And what, what you want to do is try to engineer things so that you can afford to pay more to acquire a customer and you want to be able to make ridiculously valuable offers that people really can't walk away from. Right. Right. That way you're, that way it'll lower your cost of acquisition because your competitors can't compete with that and you're just, you've got the best deal in the marketplace. And so the, the classic example with that, I, I have a friend in the gym who's an advertising salesman for Spectrum. And he works with all of these local vendors. And he says, people come to him and he say, yeah, I'll be happy to make an offer for your, for your readers. I'll give them 15% off with this coupon. Right. And he'll say, 15%? I want you to give them a free dinner. Yeah. You know, that, that's um, because the value of these people, if they come back over and over and over again, but most businesses don't compute the lifetime value of their customers. So yeah. they don't know that. Right. And so for anyone listening, if you're not aware of that, the lifetime value of your customer is basically the, the dollar value of your relationship with a client or a customer over the term that they do business with you. So... Um, I've heard in a few different places, uh, they cite, you know, average of six years. Most businesses have fresh new customer base um, for the most part. And so, you know, sometime within that six-year period, it depends, obviously, what you're selling, but how much money you can expect to make from your average customer in that time. And so what Glenn's talking about is just knowing that number so you can give away, you can put together something on the front end, you know, and maybe it's or like a loss leader, essentially, right? Like you, you sell it and you might even lose money because you know you're going to make it up over the relationship with them and you're willing to invest in the relationship with them and also kind of differentiates you from your competitors, right? Because you're giving away phones for free when everyone else is charging 500, 700 bucks or whatever. So got it. So really it sounds like for you, if anyone feels like their sales letters aren't converting or their webinar is not converting or their sales reps aren't really able to sell that they need to perhaps do some more of this heart and head research analysis and make sure that what they're, that they're really in tune with what their client's problem is and that they're making a compelling offer that's really hard to walk away from and may not even make the business any money to fulfill on that just to get a baseline of people who you've been able to help, who love you, and who will tell you how you can help them next. Is that, is that articulate? Is that accurate? That is accurate. And... The second thing to consider after the offer is, do you really have a unique differentiator? Have you given people a reason to do business with you as compared to all the competitors and as compared to the option of doing nothing? Hmm. Can you give us an example of someone who's got a good differentiator? That way we kind of can can know what you mean. I mean, like something that makes sets you apart from everyone else as opposed to being me too and another one that does xyz so mm-hmm. having like a tenant like you're the fastest or you've got the best product or yeah that, that can be that could be one of them it it would be a place where you could say the own I'm the only one who does this or the only one who does that and really prove it um we're close to being able to do that in our coaching academy. We, we don't have enough proof yet to say we're the, the absolute most powerful organization to help you work at a thriving practice, but we can say 
we're one of the only. We, we're, we're starting to be able to show more proof than other vendors have. And if we could really build a moat around that, um, you know, by, by – we've only been in business for a year and a half, and so we don't have enough coaches who, you know, have right. $100,000 practices yet. But when I get to the point when I've got 30 or 40 coaches like that and I can display them on the page and have an independent study – done by some third party that proves we have a higher rate than all of our competitors of mm-hmm. of success. success. Yep. Yeah, that that would be that would be a differentiator. Got uh, it. Back in the days when I sold ebooks, radon is this invisible gas that causes lung cancer and the state minimums for an acceptable level of radon to allow a house to pass from one owner to the next without being addressed for you know, radon mitigation, um, it turns out that it was still possible to get cancer below that state minimum. Wow. And so if there was a business that said, we have the only radon mitigation system that drops the level to proven safe levels so that your children aren't exposed mm-hmm. to radioactive gas that can cause lung cancer beyond XYZ level, then that would be a differentiator. Th- those kind of things. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Glenn, thank you so much for sharing some of this knowledge and wisdom with us. What? So you've kind of gone through all these different phases. I mean, you did the corporate thing. You did the solopreneur thing. You did the agency thing. What are you working on these days, and what are you really, really excited about? Well, um, what I'm probably most excited about is training and certifying business coaches. I also train and certify life coaches. But I'm probably most excited about training and certifying business coaches with my, with my partner, Terry Dean, because I feel like, you know, it's one thing to record a bunch of lectures and get paid for people to listen to the tapes. And it turns out because I really play in the deep end of the pool that, um, that there are a lot of businesses out there that are making millions of dollars because of what I taught them. But my implementation rate is just not high enough. And I'm not satisfied with 10% of the people actually doing what I teach, which mm-hmm. is actually reasonably okay compared to other people that teach marketing. Um, because, you know, like Dan Kennedy says, people have books, but they don't read books. Mm-hmm. But I, that's, not, that's not satisfying to me. Going back to wanting to make a real impact on the world, that's not really satisfying to me. I can make money with it. I don't have to spend a lot of time doing it. But what, what really excites me is teaching people how to go out and coach other real businesses where they can see an impact right away. That's what, that's what really excites me because I feel like that's where the systems and tools that I've developed over the years have the most impact. And the other problem that I think that that solves is that there's a lot more to running a business than just knowing how to market it. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of people probably listening to this call, certainly a lot in my audience, who genuinely know marketing really, really well. Mm-hmm. And if they had a business owner's trust, they could monetize that knowledge very quickly. But they haven't been able to monetize it themselves because they're not necessarily so good at operations or sourcing the right product or managing employees or 
dealing with taxes or lawyers or all or managing um you know managing their time mm-hmm. which is in the ways that are necessary as a business or delegating and all that kind of stuff but they really really know marketing and if they could just add to that a set of tools that would help them to be credible and get up and running quickly um you know as a business coach and they could locate the businesses that had undervalued assets and you know know how to attract them as a client and sweep them up um you know and demonstrate their expertise pretty quickly so that they can pay for their sessions and the pay for what's the year sessions in the first couple of appointments that that's what excites me mm. when, I, when people come back and tell me stories like that that's that's what excites me and so that's what I'm working really hard on these days is developing the business coaching academy and then believe it or not the personal coaching academy goes hand in hand with that because when you're coaching a business you're not really coaching a business you're coaching a business owner yeah, right and and so business owners it's not just about giving them information you have to get them to actually execute on the information and that gets into relational dynamics and why people are afraid to do what's really in their best interest and how to overcome people's head trash in order to get them to cooperate and grow their business. Hmm. So those are the things that I'm excited about these days. That's awesome. Yeah. And how, how does someone get in touch with you if they're interested in any of that? I mean, some of the things that you were saying really hit me because I think you're right. I think that it's hard to be a jack of all trades and be successful and people have to pick something to specialize in. And you obviously have done your research because you articulated it very, very well. <laughs> we have. We have. Yeah, so probably the best thing to do is to go to growthaccelerationsystem.com growthaccelerationsystem.com and you can read over the program that we offer. It's generally closed. We open a couple of times a year, so read over what we're offering. Get on the waiting list. There'll also be a link to get into our free video training, get into the free video training, and then when we do have an opening, you can can come on board. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what was the URL one more time? It was growth... GrowthAccelerationSystem.com. GrowthAccelerationSystem.com. And that's to go find out some more information about Glenn. There's also, you say, some free videos and that for people inside. Yep. If they go, yeah, that's awesome. Yep. I, Glenn, I fully endorse your stuff because, I mean, I've, I owe so much to my mentors. And, you know, you were there early in my days watching your videos and going through keyword research with you and just hearing you talk about, you know, psychology of marketing and why people buy and, I just, yeah, it's an honor to be on the call with you today, and I very, very, very much appreciate your time. Uh, please, anyone listening to this, if anything that Glenn has said has piqued your interest, please do yourself a favor and get on his list. He's definitely know, He definitely knows what he's talking about, and the results are, are everywhere. In fact, he's about to get third-party endorsed. We've <laughs> 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 been working on it. So, um, Well, we're, we're not quite yet to that point, but we, we will do that in the next couple of years. Of course, of course, of course. But... Um, it's already in the plan. You're like you, you're just very method, methodical and just, I love, I mean, it's probably your scientific background, but I, I'd love that. Even with the two of you, like you and Sharon, I can tell like the head and the heart and on your videos and you guys talk back and forth and I can see how as a couple make you just extremely powerful in, in any market you choose to go after. So thanks man. Um, I, I think we make a good team. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 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 And there's no shortage of any counseling help if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Well, Glenn, thank you so much for your time today. I do know you have to get going, so thank you so much for joining us. Our listeners, please listen through this interview again. Take your notes. Uh, like, Just think about what's actionable for you, what you can do for yourself, what you can delegate, or who you can reach out to for help. And by all means, please go visit Growth Acceleration. What was it? Growth Acceleration GrowthAccelerationSystem.com. System. GrowthAccelerationSystem.com. This is not the world's best URL. <laughs> it's, it's okay, though. It's okay. You can also go to free marketing audios, and you'll get on my list, and I will tell you when there's an opening. Yeah, perfect. Perfect, perfect. So, Glenn, thank you so much. I appreciate your time, and, um, yeah, all the best to you. And tell Sharon I said hello. Thanks, man. I'm going to run. Let me know if I can do anything for you, okay? Okay. Thanks, Daryl. You've reached the end of our interview. Now first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, what can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give them to just do it for you. Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better. And your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website, bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. Uh, you're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.